Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we'll be exploring the research and practice in energy healing, or psychic healing, if you will. My guest is Professor William Bankston, a sociologist who is both a researcher and a healer. He is the author of The Energy Cure. And now, I'll switch over to the internet video. Incidentally, I don't think we've ever met face-to-face before. I've been aware of your work, of course, for a long time. Yeah, I think you're right. You're right. Yeah, because I watch you, so I I kind of assume you know me. (laughs) Well, you know, we have friends in common. Um, In in particular, Ted Mann was a good friend of mine. Sure. And also uh, Bernie Grad. The great Grad. Yeah, I, I stayed at his house. Me too, many times. Uh huh. You stayed in the basement, so we probably slept in the same cot. <laughs> that's that's right. In the basement, Willis Harmon and I stayed in his basement on uh, one occasion many years ago. I what I used to do uh, occasionally, if I'd have a a paper I wanted a serious critique of, I would because I'm on Long Island. I would drive up to Montreal and stay at his house, and then he would then uh, take the paper, kick me out of the house. And then go after me. Uh, and, and, and so he was a wonderful, wonderful critic. Yes, he was. A, a, a great a great man, a pioneering research. And it's very gratifying for me to know that you're pursuing basically a very similar agenda. Although from both ends, both as a healer and a researcher, that's really quite unusual. Yeah, it's, it, it's interesting. I, I actually have the original cotton that Grad used with Esteban in his experiments. I was at his house once, and he got up suddenly, and he went to the back room, and he came in, and he gave me this big bag, which I have, and he said, um, you've gone past me. This is really wonderful. And, and he said, take this as a memento, which I'm keeping now till someone goes past me, and then we'll... <laughs> Well, well, the whole idea that healing can take place when, when a healer charges water or cotton or, or some other substance, uh, I mean, it really does seem to evoke the idea of magic. Well, yeah, absolutely it does. Um, uh, but, but, but this is actually what I'm working on more than anything else right now. So we've, we've done pretty elaborate recordings of healing. Uh, we've done, and, and, and the interesting thing is we, we know now we can record healing. I don't think we've captured everything, but we know now we, we have, uh, we can record something which produces, uh, reliable genomic changes in cancer in a lab. You know, we got seven iterations and all, all these genomic changes. Uh, we can't figure out why it's doing it. You know, so it, it's in that sense that if you take magic as the manipulation of the world through some means that we don't know, I would completely agree this is magic. Uh, it's, it's, it certainly uh, 
has to be included within uh, the realm of parapsychology and and the, the paranormal. And as a sociologist yourself, uh, you're well aware of uh, the the enormous. Uh, controversies and and contradictions that that accompany that sort of thing. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, the the um, yeah, many. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, another thing we have in common. I actually yeah, have a sociological degree myself. I have a master's <laughs> degree in criminology, and I know you've worked in that area. I have. I, I, in, a, in a previous incarnation, I was a criminologist, um, and 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 so now I do mostly mathematical modeling and things like that. So, Bill, why don't we start by talking um, about your early experiences, how you met Ben and uh, got involved in healing a long time ago? Sure. Um, I got into this in a kind of an unorthodox fashion um, through the back door. I, I was always interested in parapsychological phenomena. Uh, it was interesting to me on a number of levels. One, uh, the phenomena itself are somewhat anomalous, and so you 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 don't know. I mean, it, it doesn't make sense. I, you, you can't wrap yourself around it getting the information you get from the textbooks and, and so I, I was always interested in that, but I was also interested, I, I, I had done a little bit of reading on traditional parapsychological stuff going way back to the experiments of J.B. Ryan, and the experiments uh, seemed to me controlled. Uh, they, they, they didn't seem to be done by a flake. They didn't seem to be crazy methods. They didn't seem to be loosely done or anything like that. So I was kind of interested on a number of levels why um, uh, could this stuff be real? And if it was, then it's calling into question uh, certainly our understanding of the way the, the world works. Uh, but secondly, from a sociological point of view, the, the the reaction to this stuff is really, really interesting. If you if you study the sociology of science or the sociology of knowledge, uh, and you look at what are the criteria for something to become a discovery, you realize it's not just the facts alone, that there has to be some sort of preparation in in a culture. Uh, the culture might be a scientific culture. The culture might be a general culture. Uh, and, and, and so if I come to you with a finding, so we take J.B. Ryan's early work, Pierce Pratt experiments, things along those lines, uh, and, 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 you, and you show it to a practicing scientist of the day, they're going to start flopping on the floor. Uh, you know, they're, they're going to go nuts over this stuff uh, because it can't be, as you say, it's magic. Uh, magic doesn't exist. Um, we have the, our understanding of the general principles of the way the world works. This doesn't make any sense. Therefore, <laughs> get away from me. <laughs> as fast as you can <laughs> as fast as you can and I find that I find that seriously I, I, I think I, I started out you know when I started uh, researching this stuff 100 years ago um, I was naive uh, because I still had the idea that if I showed something or something occurred then, then and it was a real phenomenon, demonstrable phenomenon, reliable phenomenon, that people would say, okay, let's examine this methodologically and come to a conclusion, rather than starting out with the conclusion and then reverse engineering why you lost your mind. 
Well, uh, as a sociologist, I'm, I'm sure you're aware of the, the dozens of reasons why people would be threatened by magic. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and so the, the, the interesting phenomena, though, you got to make a distinction between a public persona and a private persona. And you, you have to say certain things on the outside. We have to say certain things out in public. We have to say certain things in order to legitimize ourselves and to have kind of a pecking order and a hierarchy and all those kinds of structural things that we take for granted. Don't even, don't even think about. Um, but you gotta, you gotta have, if someone comes along and then veers off into the paranormal, They've just taken a step down in, in status. No matter what they show, they've taken a step down because the competition is among who can rise to the top within a delimited boundary of what's possible and what's acceptable. And all of this weird stuff falls outside the boundary. So even if you do a bang-up job and you can't find methodological flaws – people start flopping on the floor and they go, well, you know, what happened to you? Where did you go? So, you know, we were talking earlier about Bernie Grad, uh, Bernie Grad, traditional oncology researcher, all sorts of discoveries um, traditionally founded that he, he went off the rails and he started into the healing and he started into this, this, this weird kind of stuff. Uh, and then he took it on the chin. He took it really on the chin. And I didn't fully understand that when I started this a long time ago. So finally getting around to your question, yeah. about 100 years ago, <laughs> I was lifeguarding, and I heard there was a psychic uh, that, who was a member of the place I was lifeguarding. And I, I you know, I, I don't, I'm a skeptic. I remain a skeptic. You, you were a teenager at the time, as I recall. I'm, I, no, I was in my 20s, in, okay. in my early 20s. Close enough, but, you know, not, not too far removed. Um, it was a couple of weeks ago, you know. So, so I ran into a guy who alleged to be a psychic, and I, I accepted the stuff I had read, for example, from J.B. Ryan, but I remained skeptical of anybody who just goes around believing this stuff. If you've got something and you're making an extraordinary claim, you better have good data, in, in my mind. I, take, I took then a skeptical approach to this, and I consider skepticism to mean open-minded critique. I've spoken to skeptic societies, and there's no skeptics in skeptic societies. Uh, I've, I've gone into like an auditorium, and everybody in the auditorium is sitting like this, you know, and they, they, they pretzeled themselves into a, and, and, and I say, you know, I'm probably the only skeptic in the room, and that really ticks them off. So they, they, you get people like this, and then they try to fold over the fold over, and, and, and they don't know what to do. And I say, I'm the only, no, we're the such and such skeptic society. I said, no, you're not. You're all a bunch of mindless believers. All of you believe the stuff I haven't said is wrong. And you're starting with the presupposition that everything I'm about to say is wrong. A skeptic would look at the stuff, question it, see if there are flaws, and make a determination based on the presentation. And the interesting thing that happens when I talk to a skeptic society 
is they don't know what to do because I present healing data and it's pretty straightforward. Uh, I don't, I can't find methodological flaws so far. Uh, and, and so it's pretty straightforward and they don't know what to do. And so they start making up methodological critiques that don't make any sense. They start telling me that it, it couldn't be because it's impossible. And it, since it's impossible, the next step is it couldn't be. At the end of the presentation, though, without fail, people will come up to me one at a time and they'll look around like this and they'll see if anybody's too near them. And then they'll come up and they'll go, that was great. And then, and then they'll run away and I say, thank you, you know, and, and, and they run away. And one after another, but they'll wait until they think nobody else can see them. And so it turns out my observation is even among the skeptic societies, there are people who are really curious about this stuff. And their identity is as part of the skeptic society. And so this is where their friendship network is. This is where they get their, their, their social life. This is where they get all this kind of thing. And so as with any organization, you're only allowed to say certain things out loud. So if I took a group of Republicans and put them in the room, they're only allowed to say certain things. If I take a group of Democrats and I put them all in the room, they're only allowed to say certain things. If I take a group in a skeptic society, they're only allowed to say certain things. You can't publicly talk about this crazy stuff uh, too much. Um, it, it, but there's an, there's an urge, there's a yearning, there's a, I want it. And I, I found this all over the place. You know, we talk about a scientific society or we talk about a cultural shift. There's a yearning for this stuff. And I think the yearning comes from couple of things. One, a perception that the world isn't the way we think it is in the textbooks. And two, just nice and simple and personal, all sorts of people have all sorts of experiences. And then I have all sorts of people having all sorts of experiences, and I'm not allowed to say it. And if I'm not allowed to say it, I actually can come to the crazy idea that I'm having the experiences you're not because you have the experience, you're having these experiencing, I'm not, and we're not allowed to talk to each other. But if we get people alone, they start to open up and they unfold. It's an interesting phenomenon. Yeah. And getting back to your question, <laughs> which probably nobody remembers, but getting back to your question, I ran into a guy who said he was a psychic. And I said, show me. And he said, okay. And so I handed him some stuff, what parapsychologists would call psychometry, and he would hold stuff and he would get impressions. And the stuff he said was remarkable to a skeptic. It was remarkable. And I started then to say, I wonder if this is real. And could it really, really be real, not wannabe, not fantasy, you know, nothing like that. But is there something really to this stuff? You know, and it's different when you read the work of J.B. Ryan versus you're seeing it right in front of you. It's visceral. And so I started to design. I was reasonably skeptical and also reasonably good at designing studies even way back then. And I started to design double-blind studies of psychometry and this guy was for real. He was 
I mean, I say this as a card-carrying skeptic. Uh, this guy, startling. And the interesting thing, which happened to me, uh, uh, it, it, as the personal story goes, is that um, he morphed spontaneously into a healer. And the way he morphed into a healer was when he would do psychometry. He'd be doing a, an object reading on something or other. He started to pick up the person's physical symptoms. And the person's physical symptoms, he would feel on him, and they would allege that they were getting better. He didn't believe it. I didn't believe it. We said, this is crazy talk. And so we heard anecdote after anecdote after anecdote. He would do a reading, someone someplace else that he'd never met, you know, because we were double-blinding all this stuff. person would have a migraine headache. He'd pick it up. He'd feel the headache. And, and the person with the migraine would say that the, the migraine went away. And we said, this is nuts. So I said to him, as someone who actually was in pain, I have a, I didn't say to him, he, he picked it up, but I had, a, I had had a bad back for several years. I'd given up a swimming scholarship in college. I was a butterflyer who couldn't arch my back after 100 meters. I'd been worked on by anybody you can think of, and I was like many, many, many people experiencing just chronic pain all the time. Nothing debilitating. It wouldn't be. It wouldn't take me out of the out of the game. Uh, but it was. It, it hurt. And so I said to him, "Put your hands on my back." And he said, "Then what?" And I said, "Fix it." <laughs> and he said, "How?" I said, "Stop asking me stupid questions. Just do it." I get. I think I came up with a Nike slogan. Just do it. Put his hands on my back. And short story is, I haven't had a pain since. And this is a long, long, long time ago. I mean, we're talking the 1970s, as I recall. Yeah. I, I don't get pain in my back. Uh, no matter what I do, I lift, I do, I do, I, I, I sports, I, this, I, I simply don't get back pain. Um, if this is a hysterical suppression of symptoms, I'm all in. <laughs> <laughs> so you had chronic pain that went on for years, and after one or, or a few treatments, uh, it went away permanently. It was one. Yeah, I don't see that very often. I don't see in healing one thing and then, you know, that's it, that's all. So if, if you're in pain, and again, this is a personal visceral thing, if you're in pain, you don't you don't forget it. I mean, you do forget pain, but but you don't you don't. It is pain. You are in pain. You you don't need to to read about it. You're in pain, and someone comes along and takes it away. It, it's it's startling, and of course, you spend quite a bit of time trying to bring it back, uh, having failed in the attempt to bring back a bad back because, and you, you come to a, a a personal visceral. This is real. Had mm -hmm. I stopped then, this is real. Now, my, my career trajectory, if you will, I had door number one and door number two at the very least. Door number one, which would be, let's, okay, my back's better. Spontaneous remission, this, that, the other. Let's make it go and let's not think about this too much. Because I'm not a believer. He wasn't a believer. And we had never seen this phenomenon before. So door number one is turn around and run away. Door number two was what in heaven's name just happened? 
let's see let's see if we can get to the bottom of this. So for better or for worse, I took the second road. And I said, let's let's see if we can figure out what happened here. And I've been doing it ever since. Mm-hmm. And, and as I recall, fortunately, you had a, a visitor to the group that you and Ben had set up who, who was a biological researcher. Yeah, and we ran into a whole lot of scientists and, and, and such. I, 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 the, the immediate response is, of course, let's do it again. Now, you couldn't do it to me again because I didn't have a bad back, but let's put it on. Let's put your hands on people who have bad backs. Let's put your hands on people who have this and people who have that. And we saw some pretty clear, uh, some pretty clear things. You know, we, we were uh, talking about magic. If you think of magic as something instantaneous, uh, I didn't see a whole lot of magic. Uh, the closest to a healing magic was me and my back because it, it literally was under five minutes. Um, that, 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 that's close to instantaneous, but that, that would be a, a rare exception and nor, uh, even at this point do I have any idea why some things work so fast and some things don't work so fast. Uh, but I, I always looked at this as a natural phenomenon and magic could be considered the manipulation of stuff for, to bring about natural phenomena and getting to larger laws of the way the world works and all this kind of stuff, you know, if we want to go down an anthropological road. Um, but it, it, um, it, I always looked at it and said, there's got to be something here. Let's see what the patterns are. And the patterns were simple. Uh, some things didn't respond. Uh, for example, and I mean didn't respond, um, benign growths uh, did not respond. Uh, so if you had even, it became a standing joke, but it's real. If you had uh, a, a wart, uh, we could treat warts all day and all night and nothing would happen. And to this day, it's kind of fun uh, because, in, and now I'm a little bit more familiar with the, the world of healing and healers. And and when I tell the story about we can't do warts, people mock me and they say, you know, any idiot can do a wart. And I say, well, this idiot can't. And I said, and I'll take it, I'll take it a step farther. If you learn my healing technique, you're going to lose the ability to do a wart. And they go, no, that's not best. And that's what happens. Uh, But on the other hand, malignancies respond. Now, if you don't take this as a hierarchy, by which I mean you don't think malignancies are better or more important than benign growths, and we just look at it as difference, any idiot can do a wart, except this idiot. But this idiot can do malignancies. So what is that going on? You know, that's that's too coincidental. So if I, I've trained hundreds of people at this point to use my method. They all report the same thing. And so if you use healing technique A, you get this but not that. If you use healing technique B, you get that, but not this. That's worth looking into. I don't know anybody who looks into it. I don't. Uh, just because I'm down the, the rabbit hole that I'm going down uh, right now. Um, but I think it's a very, very, very fertile area uh, to look into. Of course, it's very difficult to do research at all in, in this area. There's almost no funding whatsoever. Yeah, and it's and some of the stuff can can be a lot of dollars. Um, I've had I've been lucky enough 
that I, I seem to attract funding. Um, uh, my last series of experiments are, I mean, it, to, to, to make a recording of healing and test this out, probably over $350,000. Uh, I've got the funding. Um, I've got the funding to keep going. And the interesting phenomenon in my world right now is not getting money. The interesting phenomenon is being able to do research. And by being able to do research, I mean that the criteria for doing lab work in, with mice, which is my mainstay, uh, to be able to do lab work with mice, it's becoming so restrictive that it's almost impossible to do research. Before we get into the details of the research, I think it would be interesting to talk about how you yourself uh, became uh, the healer in these studies, because where where we left off, it was your friend Ben, who was the healer, and, and you, you were the observer. Yeah, yeah, and and he, we, 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 I was looking always for a this or that kind of thumbs up or thumbs down on a test. I like, I think I like things in real simple terms, and and so other people are far more complex than I am. I want to know in a nice simple question. Yup, nope, something works, something doesn't work. The work goes away. The work doesn't go away. The malignancy goes away. The malignancy doesn't go away. These malignancies work fast, these malignancies work slow, and so I like measurable kind of in-your-face uh, kind of results. And so with a buddy of mine um, uh, that I met uh, at, at meetings at, at Ben's place, he was the former acting provost of City University of New York. I think he also might have been had an interim presidency there, but he was at the very least uh, the chair of the biology department and a pretty well-known researcher in Conventional things. His name is Dave Crinsley. Um, no longer with us. Um, but Dave uh, was a. You're talking about putting your professional reputation on the line. This guy was on the cover of Science and Nature, and you know all that kind of stuff. All, all the prestige. He was the lead on the on, on a bunch of the Moon Rock stuff, and you know on and on. And and we're sitting there, and, he, and Dave was curious and just looking and, and, and watching and looking at this person get treated and that person get treated. And he and I struck up a, a pretty good friendship, very good friendship. Um, and and he said, uh, I think I can get, I think I can pull some strings and get some some studies going. And I said, black and white, yes or no, works, doesn't work, binary outcomes. And it, so he went poking around, and the head of the biology department at Queens College had a researcher in his department uh, doing research on mammary cancers for 20 years and mammary cancers in experimental mice. Um, and the, the, if, if we were speaking to a group of biologists, everybody would know the mice we're talking about. Everybody would know the cancer. There's, there's literally over 2000 published studies on these mice. Now this is my wheelhouse. There's 2000 studies on these mice. Everybody knows what happens. So you take a certain number of cells, cancer cells, you inject them into this kind of mouse, and you know what happens. And it forms a beautiful normal curve. No mouse has ever lived past 27 days after injection. The standard deviation of death is three days. So two-thirds of them die plus or minus three days. 
this you know with each day what odds you were of getting to whatever you have. And if you're a traditional researcher, these are published in textbooks, they're published in articles, they're published all over the place. No mouse, no matter what you do to it, has ever lived past 27 days, and here's what happens. So if I'm a traditional researcher, the question's pretty simple. I take a drug, a therapy, or something, and can I change the distribution? Can I take a normal distribution and turn it into a negatively skewed distribution? Even if they don't live past 27 days, are we getting them in the aggregate to live a little bit longer than they otherwise would have? Can we get a mouse to live to day 28? And so we, you know, th th this is well known in the scientific community. So this is a beautiful model. No guesswork. So we take these mice, we get the researcher to inject a bunch of mice. Ben was supposed to do this because he's a healer. I'm just a watcher. And he is or was, he's dead now. I don't know what he is now. But he is, was, he backed out. I wasn't happy. Dave Crinsley wasn't happy. The biology department wasn't happy. The, you know, you keep going because, as you point out, it takes a while to put this stuff together. It's hard. And so we're stuck with a bunch of cancerous mice and no healer. And so Dave said, you've been around this the longest you do it. And I went, me? You know, why can I do it? Give me a break. I don't believe this crap, let alone <laughs> think I can do it. And so we did it. And, and, and I learned a lot from the first experiment. Among the things I learned was... The way that I think of this stuff as magic, which is the way I was thinking way back then, it's not. And by magic, I mean magical thinking. I expect something to, you know, wave my magic wand and wave my magic hands and things go away. Or that I have a desired outcome and I can bring about that desired outcome through my own willpower. You know, I'm so wonderful <laughs> and so special that I can will the outcome and nature will conform to my wishes. I mean, I was thinking in these magical terms. And so I'm thinking, and this is the, the, the many years ago naive me, that if I got a cage of mice, first of all, I couldn't do it because I'm not a healer, but if I got a cage of mice and I put my hands around a cage of mice, Reasonably soon after they were injected with this fatal cancer, and I did my healing shtick, you know, zzz, zzz, kind of stuff. I was thinking of an analogous to, uh, to um, radiation, you know, zap, zap. I'm zapping. And my, I, I, instead of using a big machine, I got my magical hands, which do magical things. And so magical things would happen. And, of course, if I got to it early enough, the cancer couldn't grow. I'm too wonderful. <laughs> and, and so we, the thing starts along. And the mice start to develop tumors. And I, being an empiricist, say, it's not working. I mean, here are tumors. I don't want tumors. I'm going, zzz, zzz. tumors are growing anyway, equals it's, it's, it's the experiment's failing. Crinsley, being a little more either intuitive or thick than me, said, do it a couple more days. And I said, but it's not working. He said, shut up and do it a couple more days. So I did it a couple more days. And at the end of a couple of days, the mice had bigger tumors. So they went from no tumor to tumors. I thought it was failing to bigger tumors. 
And Crinsley said, couple more days, because they, they're still running around the cage. Couple more days, tumors can start to get really huge. And then they develop a blackened area on them. They then start to ulcerate. I didn't see any of this coming. I'm freaking out, because I don't believe this crap. And I'm going, and, and, and the things are opening. They're really ugly looking. But the eyes are clear. The coat's clear. The mice are running around with an ugly appendage on them, but they're running around having a good time. Couple more days, the thing implodes. Mice are cured. They're not remitted, they're cured. They're cured by cure, I mean, there's no cancer. It, it never comes back for the entire lifespan. They're cured, and by that I mean not only does it not come back for the entire lifespan, they can't get cancer again. Reinjections of the cancer won't take. So for the rest of their life, they're immune to the cancers. That's a cure. At this point, we've done it 18 times with various types of cancers. It's no longer, no longer an interesting question whether healing happens. It's no longer an interesting, I mean, the biologist freaked out. And, and, and this, incidentally, is how I met the great Bernard Grad. Uh, Grad, being an oncology worker, knew these mice. They were all over the place. You know, I mean, these are the most commonly used mice in research at the time. And Grad had used these exact mice on all the healers he met. And so Estebani couldn't fix these mice. And all of the other folks that Grad worked with had no effect on the cancer. So when I cured them, it got his attention. Now, we should uh, review. Bernard Grad had uh, done studies with mice where he, if I remember correctly, he would uh, cut a, a wound, like a one-inch square wound on the mice, and he'd have Colonel Estebani, who was the healer, heal those wounds, and he reported a, a number of successful studies. Big time. Plant growth, uh putting poison in plants, uh, a, a goiter in mice. I mean, the great grad is the guy. Uh, so what I'm doing may have been a little more extensive uh, than he did, but he's the guy. <laughs> he's really the, the first researcher to do double-blind studies on psychic healers, to my knowledge. Me too. And, and I think for all practical purposes, it, it all good healing research can be traced to him in one way or another. And it, 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 frankly, um, it drives me a little bit nutty when I, if I'm giving a talk, say at a conference on therapeutic touch or something, they don't know the techniques come from the work of Grad Nestabani. And this bugs me a little bit as you knew him, I knew him, and one of the most humble, wonderful people of all time um, and and, and it, to see the blossoming of his early work is such a beautiful thing, but it also bugs me that people don't know that we're just in the lineage of the great one. And and I remember talking to other parapsychologists who first learned about Grad's research. I I think he published some studies back in the 1960s, even, and and they were in disbelief. They they thought at that time, well, you can have card guessing and dice experiments, but psychic healing that's that's a step too far. Yep, yep, and so again, we have a boundary, and so. 
my weird stuff is okay. Your weird stuff is not okay. <laughs> I call this, I wrote a paper called The Boggle Effect. It has a couple of connotations. Uh, one is um, my stuff's okay. Your stuff is not okay. And so I've got to draw a boundary because everybody's got, I too have a boundary where you push it. You, if you're pushed too far, you start flopping on the floor. You go, I just, I can't, it can't, it can't. you know, so the parapsychologist couldn't do the healing. The healing couldn't do the ESP. The ESP people can't do the, you know, and, and, and on it goes. And I, I'm a, a, a president of, of the Society for Scientific Exploration. And this is a, a group of uh I don't know, 800, 900 nerds and geeks around the world uh, who, who study uh, paranormal phenomena. And we next year are, we're doing a co-meeting with the Parapsychological Association. Um, and, uh, but in any event, the Society for Scientific Exploration, um, I, I've, I presented my data of various experiments at, at the place, and I, it, it, it came to my attention that somebody, I'm not going to give a name, but somebody in the society, well-known, said to someone else, it can't be, you know, the stuff that I'm doing. It can't be. It's not possible. It's just, it's, you know, like you're saying, it's too far. It, 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 you, this is okay. That's not okay. Uh, Bankston goes too far. And, and, and I got real defensive at first when I heard this because I said, well, what, you know, what am I doing wrong? You know, find a methodological flaw. I'm fine. You know, make it better or find where I'm screwing up. I'm okay with that. Um, and, and so I, I felt, you know, this defensiveness internal cause I, I do reasonably careful studies and, and I found this defensiveness and then it occurred to me, I have the same feeling about his stuff. And so I'm sitting there feeling, give me a break. My stuff's wonderful. He's sitting there feeling, give me a break. My stuff's wonderful. But both of us have difficulty with the other stuff. And we're in a society that does control studies on paranormal phenomena. And everybody, no matter who it is, has a boggle button that if you go too far, you go, yeah, <laughs> you know, that's too much. So healing, and I've run into this, healing can be okay, but you can't heal cancer. Which was, in effect, what Bernard Grad's experience had been. Yes, Yes. And the great grad had some experiences that were really interesting. He would call, we became very good friends, um, and he would call me up. He was a late night person. So I get calls at one o'clock in the morning, and it would just start out going, This is grad. And, and, and I would say, This is Bankston. And, and then he, he wouldn't say hello. He would just go, This is grad. And then he'd start in with a question. He's yelling at me at one o'clock in the morning. And so at one o'clock in the morning, he's going, what were the cage made, made of? And I said, what are you talking about? He goes, your mice experiments. And he's yelling at me. And he says, your mice experiments, what were the cages made of? What would what, what they look like? And I said, well, they're, you're a biologist. Give me a break. They're mouse cages. They're, they're plastic on the side, metal on the top. They got a water. He goes, with absolute assurance, you can't heal through plastic. And I said, I'm sorry, I didn't know. <laughs> I won't do it again. <laughs> I apologize. <laughs> but the great grad, and I don't say that lightly, the great grad was taking his experiences, concretizing them, and turning them into a rule. So he was okay 
with me curing cancer so long as I could show the kind of cancer and the this and the that and the protocol and all that stuff. And he goes, yeah, you cured cancer. But he wasn't okay with being able to heal through plastic. And that was real to him. And everybody's got that. You know, we, we, I do research and you do research and everybody does research and we're, 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 we're doing this and that. And we're taking our experiences and we're taking our, the occurrences which occur, the data which we run into, and we're trying to concretize it as if we know enough to come up with the rule. And if, once we start doing that and excluding those who violate the rule, we're doing the same things we complain that the other folks are doing to us. We want to have the illusion that we understand how it works. Let's talk for a bit about the method that you've developed, because in addition to working with mice in the laboratory, you you have treated many human beings. I wouldn't be surprised if, if you've treated over a thousand or maybe several thousand people by now. Yeah, I probably haven't done a thousand people, but uh, certainly there's more than a thousand people who have used my method that have done it. Uh, so right now, uh, I'm, I'm trying to, uh, uh, spend my, my, my time in the lab and, and trying to go down a particular research path. Uh, when, when folks come and they want a, a treatment for this or that, I farm them out to folks who have, um, uh, learned my method, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and frankly, and, and this isn't false humility, I think probably, uh, a, a bunch of the folks that I've trained are much better than I am. Uh, and that's not false humility. It goes back to the plastic problem. I, in my experiences, I now think, you know, I know some of the rules of healing and a newbie comes along and thinks Bankston is full of it and can be more playful with the stuff than I can. And therefore they're able to do more than I can. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, the, it's, it's, it's all tied together that way. Mm-hmm. Um, Grad knows you can't heal through plastic. I never heard the rule. Uh, other people, uh, I, I say my experience is when you're doing a person, if they've got cancer, if you combine healing and killing, uh, if you combine two therapies with different uh, polar opposite approaches, uh, most traditional therapies try to kill. Uh, they, they're trying to kill cells. They're trying to kill tumors. They're trying to do all that stuff. If you're healing, you're trying to heal the stuff. You know, very different. And I'm wondering the interactive effects of healing and killing, and I'm not a big fan of mm-hmm. combining. Uh, and, and frankly, my clinical failures uh, have been of those people who have combined the healing and the killing. In other words, chemo and radiation. Yeah, yeah. And, and so I'm, I'm going to try to, you know, zzz, zzz, um, but instead of using hands, I'm using a machine. And I'm trying to, I mean, radiation does a beautiful job of killing cells. Uh, it's a very different thing than curing something, but if you have a targeted bunch of cells and you want them dead, we've got the arsenal to kill them. Uh, if I suspect that the mechanism of healing is very different than the mechanism of killing, and healing and killing may not be great combinations. And 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 you know, you bring up um, uh, several times magic. There, there are people who think of healing uh, as somehow separate from nature. Um, and not so in, in, you go into conventional medicine and you can talk about, for example, uh, the interaction, negative interaction of statins and grapefruit. If you're on statins, you shouldn't eat grapefruit because 
you know, yada, yada, yada. And there's not enough, there's not enough attention, in my opinion, um, uh, that people put on interact interaction effects. But they think, well, I can do chemotherapy, I can do radiation, and then I'll throw in some healing. But healing is spiritual and therefore will have no interactive effects with the other stuff. Why is it different? I mean, that's crazy talk. So my stuff does this but not that. Other stuff does that but not this. What happens if you combine my healing with their healing? Does it produce a, an emergent property of something new? Is it additive? Does it subtract? Do they cancel each other out? In the same way you could talk about any combination of conventional therapy that might enhance or might cancel each other out, that is, I think, a completely unexplored area of healing. And it's assumed that you've got medicine and then you've got healing. And healing must only have wonderful positive outcome. Crap! Maybe healing's the grapefruit to the conventional medicine statin. Maybe this ought not to be combined with that. And that kind of categorical thinking that, first of all, all healing is alike, I think is not, not productive. Uh, and the second thing, that healing is somehow separate from nature, I think is absolutely not productive. If we take magic in the anthropological sense of the manipulation of energies to change the world, to change something that you can observe then healing is indeed magic, but so is conventional medicine. And magic and magic may not all be, if I practice this version of magic and you practice that version of magic, I don't know necessarily that both are good to be done simultaneously. Well, of course, there are probably hundreds of, of different approaches to healing. Uh, what struck me most about uh, the approach that you and Ben developed is that it wasn't just a a, a one-time, ten-minute uh, sort of experience. Uh, for the, although your back cure apparently was, but for the most part, you you and Ben w would come back week after week, working on either the mice or, or or the people with multiple treatments, and and a treatment might last as long as an hour. Oh yeah, no treatments. Yeah, if we're doing formal experiments, I've. I've done ex formal experiments on, on, on experimental mice with, with you know, predefined uh, parameters. So once a week, three times a week, five times a week, seven times a week, an hour at a time, a half hour at a time, 45 minutes at a time. You know, we've tried all, 10 mice at a time, five mice. At, I've done a lot of, lot of studies. 10 mice at a time, five mice at a time, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and there is wide variation there's no way, famous last words, I now sound like grad, there's no way that you're going to make a prediction on an individual case. I can speak in the aggregate in terms of probabilities, but I can't speak in terms of simple causal connections. So, for example, if I treat two mice that are essentially clones of one another, I mean, they're not literally clones, but close enough. They're genetically identical. They're identical twins. They're, they're same everything. They're in the same cage, and they're treated by the same person. 
Same food, same everything. They had never had an independent moment in their lives. The, you'll never find two people this identical. Identical mice, same number of cells injected into them on the same day. Mouse A will take X number of days. Mouse B will take two and a half times as long to get cured. Now, how do you explain that? And the answer, of course, is you're not going to. So we statisticians call that unexplained variance, <laughs> which is code for, hell, I don't know, <laughs> which is the same thing that you find in people. Mm -hmm. So if you have in people, and I have Fred here, and I have Betsy there, and they seem to have the same things. They're not going to be obviously as identical as the mice, but Fred gets better very quick, and Betsy takes a long time. There's a tendency out there that drives me up the wall. We blame Betsy. Betsy didn't have the right frame of mind. Betsy wasn't thinking properly. Betsy wasn't, Betsy wasn't, and it's Betsy's problem. But I'm telling you, identical mice will be the same as people. And the variation you get in mice is the same variation you get in people. The variation you get in cell cultures is the same variation you get in mice and in people. The variation is out there. So I can't tell you what's going to happen to mouse A any more than I can tell you what happens to Fred. But I can tell you if you put 100 Freds in a room what happens and how much treatment does it take to fix Fred. I, we can talk about dose response. We can talk about all those kinds of things. Now, here's an interesting fact. By fact, I mean reliable, repeatable phenomenon in multiple labs using independent facilities. The only predictor we have, and again, I've done dose-response experiments once a week, three times a week, five times a week, etc. The only predictor of the aggregate speed of cure is the number of mice in an experiment. The more mice in an experiment, the faster they're collectively cured. What a surprising finding, yeah. So it's harder to do 25 mice than it is 75 mice. It's harder to do 5 mice than 25 mice. The more mice, the faster they collectively cure. But I still can't tell you what happens to this mouse because that's part of the overall distribution pattern. So we get a Gaussian distribution pattern of speed of cure. They all go to cure, but some are faster than others. If I'm a clinician, I'm sitting there and I've got my patient in front of me and I'm doing whatever it is that I'm doing. And I'm trying to say, do this, do that. Here's a technique. But I'm focused as if they're, they're, they're in charge of it, as if it really matters. And it turns out it doesn't. What matters is a collective resonant bonding. Can we take a group of mice, people, cell cultures, bond them together, and collectively pull them towards a cure? That's an interesting problem. That's a unique way of, of thinking about it, that it, it becomes <laughs> sociological in a sense. Yeah, in the same way that I think a second cousin to this is we're, we're thinking wrong about placebos. Placebos, to, the, to my utter astonishment, 
look like, or people talk about them as if it's a psychological factor. If I believe, you know, and I can take a pill that says placebo on it, and and, and I and, and you give it to me, and you've got your white coat on and all that kind of stuff, and and this, and they talk about the expectations and the this and the that. I think this is this is off. This is way off. I uh, the, the the and if you if you look at the data on placebos, it's reasonably interesting. Um, it, it doesn't make any sense from an individualistic point of view. It makes sense from a collective point of view. Then, and one of our faith-based assumptions um, in in all of experimental science, certainly, is that physical separation means independence. So, if I take a mouse over here and I had take a mouse over there, if one mouse is here and one mouse is there, they're independent of each other. You know, don't be an idiot. This the mouse is here, the mouse is there. But what if physical separateness is an illusion? What if physical separateness can be violated? Which is certainly the idea behind quantum entanglement. Yeah, and I don't like I don't like the term quantum entanglement. I mean, not for quantum things, but I, I like the, the term resonant bonding, which I think are fluid. Quantum entanglement is a one-directional process. You become entangled. And then you have non-locality and all that kind of stuff. Resonant bonding, everybody everybody knows what resonant bonding is. Um, they've all experienced it. Um, you, you can love your dog on Monday and hate your dog on Tuesday. Now, it's the same dog. What changed? It's the bond. So I'm connected to my dog. You can be connected to any person, place, thing, idea, on Monday and not on Tuesday. And so I think the question of what are the, when we're talking about placebos as well as healing itself, what are the rules of bonding and what are the rules of unbonding? How does one connect and how does one disconnect? But it's not entanglement. I'm not entangled for life. I'm not entangled in anything of the approaching perpetuity. I've got a connection. If I've got a connection, maybe there's what many people have taught, non-locality. Non-locality, I mean, the question I have, is non-locality the default position and locality is a separate case? Or is locality the default position and non-locality is, is the special case? I don't know which way it goes. You know, I mean, I'm not, that, that's past my pay grade. Uh, but, but in any event, there can be locality and there can be non-locality. When we're dealing with, here's the dirtiest little secret of placebos. Placebo responses are directly proportionate to the stimulus used. And placebo responses get stronger as the sample size goes up. So if you've got five people and five people, the placebo effect won't be as strong as if you've got 100 people and 100 people. Now think of my mice. If I give X drug to this group, I get X placebo response. If I give 2X drug, I get 2X placebo response. Now, how can that be something that's suggestible? 
Well, to, to back up a little bit, Bill, uh, I gather that your thinking in, along these lines was provoked by the fact that in a number of your studies where you had a control group and an experimental group, the, the control, the control mice who are expected to die at 28 days, uh, were healed just as yep. much as the experimental mice. Yep. And, and they're healed in a similar way that placebos occur. So I have placebo effect, modelable placebo effects in mice that mirrors what happens in people. Related to sample size, related to dose, related to the same stuff. I get placebo effects in cell cultures. Now I'm really skeptical. I'm a skeptic anyway, but I'm really skeptical that a lot of cell cultures believe a lot of stuff. (laughs) Yeah. I'm less skeptical, but still skeptical that mice believe in a lot of stuff. But the patterns in mice mirror the patterns in cell cultures, which mirror the patterns in people. I mean, the whole point of working with mice in the first place is is to avoid uh, the placebo effect and suggestibility in general. Yeah, but it turns out mice are more suggestible than we thought. And, and so it turns out it's difficult. The, the, the default position seems to be loca- non-locality. Hmm. And now our question in our experiments is how do we get the mice to die? Because we have to get them out of the building. We have to get them. We don't know. Distance doesn't seem to matter in healing, but it seems to matter whether they're in the cavity within which the healing is actually being done. So there's something about physical space. Distance, I mean, we've done uh, mice experiments and replicated stuff. We've done it two inches. We've done it at 2,000 miles. We get the same results. What in heaven's name could do that? It's certainly not energy. There's no energy in healing. If there were energy, it would diminish with distance. So, in other words, the title of your book, The Energy Cure, is a bit of a misnomer. Totally. Totally. When, when, when Sounds True showed me the cover and said, we're going to call the book The Energy Cure, I said, I don't think there's any energy. And they said, thanks for your input. <laughs> so I, I said, it, it, there's no energy. You know, it, it wouldn't diminish with distance. None of, not, not none, but a, a chunk of the, of the data are contrary to what you think of as energy. So we call energy healing energy healing because it sounds right or we think, you know, we, we're looking for materialistic uh, analog um, and, and, and we're always looking for a materialistic analog. Even as we deny the materialist model, uh, we're still looking for materialist analogs uh, trying to make ourselves comfortable, but it, it, does, it, it simply doesn't make any sense. So I'll, I'll just, I, I'm perfectly fine calling it weird healing, you know, hocus pocus healing, <laughs> you know, anomalous healing, paranormal healing healing i have no idea how it works healing uh but it's it's not energy it's not it's not it's not taking on the characteristics of energy well i certainly have the sense from your description of these various experiments and and experiences that the uh the mindset of of the humans involved uh create uh, at least temporary constraints on what's going on i think so I think so. And, and you can break a bond. You can make a bond. You can, you can this, you can that. And, and I'm, again, I'm doing it in the lab. 
but I, I would I would suggest to anybody out there who's interested in healing of people that that if you if you start thinking in bonding terms and if you start thinking about how can I maximize healing, I'm not so much concerned about whether belief matters. In fact, I don't think belief helps at all. Uh, the, one of the problems of belief is that people have a tendency to spend uh, too much um, intellectual and emotional capital trying to defend beliefs. Uh, because if I believe this, well, I, I, I want to protect my belief. Um, and, 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 and so I'll try to manipulate the world to protect my belief. I fortunately have done so many experiments uh, in so many different places that I don't have any beliefs left to defend. Uh, and I can completely relax. All of my beliefs are wrong. Uh, anything I ever believed at one point, I have tested and I'm never right. And, <laughs> and, and so I have, I have the wonderful... There's no greater gift I can give someone than simply acknowledge that all your beliefs are wrong. Relax. You, you don't need to defend them. Everything you think is true will be overthrown sooner or later. And that overthrow will be overthrown down the road. Relax. You're wrong. And you can do an experiment or you can do a healing or you can do whatever with more of a playful innocence than trying to replicate what you did before and trying to see that they get and you can't heal through plastic and you can't do this and you can do that and here are the rules i mean there's nothing more bizarre to me you've probably run across this someplace or other like a big thick healing manual as if you follow this then magic occurs well that's the same thing as taking a witch's brew and throwing in this into the cauldron and saying this plus this plus this equals that. Come on, folks. You don't have it in a manual. You don't have the sacred incantation. You don't have the ritual that works. When you do ritual, you're going to begin the decline effect. Relax. Be playful. Observe. Nature's pretty interesting. You don't need to do it as a defense of beliefs. Well, Dr. William Bankson, this has been a very enlightening conversation. Uh, I think that many of our viewers will probably be inspired to uh, uh, experiment and explore uh, healing potentials themselves. And uh, so I want to thank you very much for being with me. You're very welcome. Very welcome. Thank you.